It's the Life of Gem Faith. It's the Life of Gem Live video podcast, and this episode is super cool. We have Cecilia Caballero, and she is going to talk to us today. She's a writer, a PhD. She just got her PhD at USC, and she's going to talk to us about a number of topics, mostly about marketing, motherhood, and more. So we'll talk about that. So first, I'm going to read her bio, and then I'll bring her in. Based in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles, California, Cecilia PhD Caballero PhD is a poet, a creative nonfiction writer, and a lecturer in the California State University System. And she co-edited the best-selling book, the Chicana Motherwork Anthology, which we're going to talk about. She's an alum of workshops and fellowships with Vona, Macondo, Tin House, the Women's National Book Association and Roots, Wounds, and Words. She also served as a 2022 Visiting Teaching Artist with the Poetry Foundation, and she is a 2023 Aspen Words Emerging Writer Fellow. As a teaching artist, Cecilia's goal is to cultivate more communal spaces of storytelling and healing justice for BIPOC folks. Her prose and poetry have been published widely, including in Dryland, Raising Mothers, The Asentos Review, and elsewhere. Her work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, Best of the Net, and the Riesling Award. She's currently working on a memoir and a book of poetry. Find her on Twitter at La underscore Sangre, Sangre Yama, and on Instagram at Burkworm underscore poor underscore Vita. And I'll put those links in a little bit in the comments when she's reading. Welcome, Cecilia. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited, especially since we booked this many months ago. <laughs> and uh, thank you for just this podcast and the showcase that you have for our the writing community. So thank you for your time and your service. Oh, that really makes me happy. And, you know, we go way back. We've, we've done Macondo together. That's where we met. We've done re- a couple readings together now. And we always, it's always just a joy to talk to you and to hear you read and to just see that, you know, your focus on community and family. It's so impressive. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. So we are going to start out with you reading. Um, so go right ahead. I'm going to put the camera just on you, but I'm here in the back. called Exoskeleton, and it's from my work in progress, my memoir. And very briefly, it is about uh, my dissertation defense and uh, some complex family relationships and what it means to be a first-generation graduate, daughter of immigrants um, who are very low income and um, estrangement, so um, and motherhood and... Uh, this particular uh, chapter from the memoir also challenges the notions of meritocracy um, and, you know, upward social mobility through higher education, which is not always the case. Um, So there can be a lot of costs that we have as we navigate these higher education spaces, especially as people of color. So that's just some brief context and I'll go ahead and begin. So this essay is called Exoskeleton. It was that time in the L.A. summer when the fig tree in my yard flourished itself into the smoggy skyline, its branches alive with ripeness. The fragrance of the figs drew the attention of June bugs 
who buzzed between branches and ate away most of the sweetness before I could, the rainbow iridescence of their exoskeletons shining through sunshine and sky. I don't remember that I missed the company of the June bugs until they return every summer to feast with mouths wide open, jaws clacking with joy. I don't have an exoskeleton, but I have learned to protect the softness of myself in other ways, just like the June bugs, just like any alive creature. On that day, I wore large hoop earrings that I bought from the clearance bin at CVS and a delicate turquoise bracelet that my son gave me for good luck. I pulled on the only Calvin Klein dress that I owned, bought on sale at Macy's with an additional 10% off coupon. Rather than bother with heels, I wore my favorite pair of turquoise leather huaraches from a vendor at Plaza Olvera, located near my home. To finish, I added a swipe of sunset-hued lipstick. The jojoba oil and bright pigment reminded me that I could adorn my lips into a weapon with elements of the earth, too. Satisfied, I knew that I was protected, at least for that day. Minutes later, I arrived on campus with my son. We walked past the towering brick buildings that cost millions to build, more money than I would ever hold in my hands, past the security guards they hire to remind me that they will protect its wealth. Here, there are no June bugs, which means they did not witness my dissertation defense. Instead, there is only the unsettling quiet of a university campus in the summer. I made my way to the classroom with my son, where we hurried past the whiteboard and the jumbo flat screen TV and flyers that lined the wall. My son sat down and raised his right arm high into the air and gave me an earnest thumbs up. He always believed in me. Soon after, four friends arrived and dropped into their seats one by one with arms full of handwritten cards and cellophane wrapped tulips and tinted glass bottles filled with essential oil sprays. My friends and my son were my audience to witness me become a doctor, but not my parents. I haven't spoken to my father in years and I haven't spoken to my mother and I hadn't spoken to my mother for six months. To me, there is more safety in their absence. Inside the classroom, I sat down and spoke with the sheen of the sunset on my lips. I don't think that I'll speak to my father again, but with my mother, there is still a wanting there, a wish for something that won't ever happen even if I pick up her calls again. I wish for the way that she used to take me to the local lake and feed geese with old loaves of sandwich bread, throwing our laughs and breadcrumbs high into the clouds like confetti. I wish for the way that we used to link arms and clack our heels on cobblestone toward the plaza in search of handmade pecan ice cream, our favorite, during the handful of visits to her hometown in Michoacan. I wish that I knew my mother as the young woman who posed for a professional photo in a studio, a photo which was proudly displayed in the living room when I was growing up. On that day, my mother adorned her body in a cream button-down collar shirt and studded earrings with a pixie haircut, her eyes daring to look directly into the camera, into me. I think that she was sure of herself back then, which means that she was still new in this country, still hopeful. That was years before the eviction notices, before the court cases against my father, before her mind became a home for the madness that was all around her. My mother no longer laughs into the sky with me, and she doesn't offer me her arm when we walk side by side anymore. And even though we haven't spoken in months, I know that she still has hope in me, the daughter who loved to make something of herself with her mind. My mother wasn't there with me in the classroom that day, and yet I still did and did not want my mother. I didn't not invite my mother to my defense, but I did text my brother, Jesse. My brother texted back that he could drive down to LA with my mother, sure thing. All I had to do was give him $800 for car repairs. 
I will pay you back next week when I get my paycheck, he texted. I'm almost a doctor, and that's supposed to mean success in this country, but I can't afford that. No, I can't give you $100. Zoom is fine. I just want this to be over. The car remains unrepaired, and they do not come to LA, but I'm used to this by now, the way that the distance between us is determined by our bank account balances. Well, you're a doctor now, and you can make lots of money, he texts. I don't tell him about my adjunct paychecks from one of the local state universities where I teach students who look like me and who think the same thing too, that a, that a degree means money and success and happiness. With my doctorate, I wanted to pay for my family's car problem, cockroach infestation problem, mold on the bathroom wall problem, high blood pressure problem, alcoholism problem, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease problem, mental health problem, everything problem. I wanted my degree to solve the problem of being poor. Instead, I talked into my camera, into my laptop's camera while my mother and brother watched me on a cell phone from 300 miles away. I couldn't see them on my screen, but they must have been sitting near the rattling AC unit, a necessity for the 100 degree summers there. Perhaps my mother sat in one of the plastic folding chairs at the dining table, a dining area that my mother made hers with a blood red Christmas themed tablecloth that was patterned with swirls of mistletoe and snow. The Christmas tablecloth remains there all year, year after year, and it reminds me of all the festivities that we are owed, like that day that I earned my degree. That same Christmas-themed table is where she keeps her stash of drugstore nail polishes, tall stacks of Sam's Choice tissue boxes, and multiple bottles of extra-strength Tylenol. These objects are evidence of the ways that she cares for herself, a healing process that I tried but failed to complete with the words that I wrote in my dissertation. During the defense, I barely paused to take a breath because I knew that my mother had to get on the bus for work soon to deep fry more batches of food for other hungry people. I hurried up. Time is money and healing isn't always certain for mothers and daughters like us. And I'll stop there. Aww. I'm a little choked up. So, so beautiful. The way you capture blue collar life. And, and it's not... <clears throat> The reason you capture it is because you've lived it, right? Yeah. And I just had Christian Livermore on, who's a Caucasian writer, but she wrote a book about poverty. Yes. And oh. and, and it was so powerful mm -hmm. to me. And these, it, you capture these images. You start out with telling us that you bought your gold hoops in the CVS bin, right? And then you got an outfit on sale at Macy's. And, you know, this, you just, you're getting your doctorate and you're a doctor and your brother needs $800 to get there. And I mean, just to capture the role that economics plays in a first generation college student, much a first generation PhD, right? I mean, you're at the, the highest level of academic excellence at one of the, the most elite institutions. And yet, your family's struggling and can't even kind of come see you, you know, like can't see you come to fruition with this. And so how did, so exoskeleton, is that the armor that you put on? Like, what does the skeleton, like, what is that? What's the metaphor that you're using there? Yeah. So that's the metaphor of just wanting that um, self-protection or a mm -hmm. protection that I create. Uh, on my own. And so yeah. later on, uh, I talk about, so the essay kind of ends where um, I come home, I go out to dinner with friends, and then I come home. And the next day, you know, I step out into my yard and see the June bugs again, and their exoskeletons and kind of what they taught me. And that also comes from uh, 
what I want to convey in the complexities of my relationship with uh, my parents in yeah. terms of like the estrangement with my father. So then in other parts of the memoir that I'm working on, um, you know, there was, you know, violence and abuse in my family. And then with um, my mother, so it's, it's complicated. Um, oh, yeah. And I think, so that's kind of what I explore there that um, I wanted my parents to protect me, but uh, in some ways um, they harmed me. So the exoskeleton metaphor is just, you know, the minerals of the earth, um, you know, trusting myself, um, you know, trying to heal. And your own mothering, right? Your nurturing of your son. I know your son is such a huge, you bring him to a lot of events. He's such a huge part of your life. And you're kind of trying to break that cycle a little bit by being so nurturing with him, I'm sure. You know, I always say, kind of in jest, kind of in truth, I was raised by wolves. You know, it took me many (laughs) years to realize that my parents did the best they could with what they had, with their limited skill set. And I've forgiven my, you know, passed away father and me and my mom are really good friends now. But I'm 52 and she's 84. (laughs) So it's taken many years to kind of see my mom, my dad was an alcoholic. Yeah, similarly. And uh, my mom, I realized, did a lot of uh, adapting for him. And a lot of it was her coping. So I I think it's when you're writing these memoirs about family and stories about family, there's a resonance there. And I I, this isn't in our question, the questions that I gave you. But I just thought that I really would love to know what you think of this. I have this theory that the reason a lot of writers of color fictionalize their true stories is because of these issues, how hard it is to talk about family. Um, It's a legitimacy issue. Will we be believed? Will our families get upset? Will our communities of color feel like we're stigmatizing and engaging and kind of creating these uh, stereotypes? But what do you think it is? You have your PhD. I mean, you're so accomplished. I just, I would love to know what you think because I've been thinking about this issue a lot because a lot of writers of color and poor white folk, they uh, fictionalize this stuff. And I just, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, in terms of like the genre of fiction, well, I think maybe mm-hmm. fiction writers could speak more to that. I don't write fiction, although I am interested in speculative fiction uh, and mm-hmm. speculative poetry. But, um, but right now, I'm mostly writing in you know, memoir and personal essays <coughs> and poetry. But, um, but I think, yeah, I think that can be a way to um, you know, have some distance from yeah. these difficult topics and themes and I think um that that there are you know multiple perspectives multiple ways to um examine that or unearth that Mm -hmm. and part of it is the ethics of it and um so I haven't fully worked that out for myself so in terms of you know, what I read about my mom and dad, even though there's kind of like estrangement there or some distance there. Um, but I still am trying to figure out, especially because it's my first book, um, yeah. you know, what is my story to tell and what isn't my story to tell. So. Oh, I'm that's still, very hard. Yeah. 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 So I'm still in the process, very much in the process of figuring that out. You'll notice, and I'm going to send you a cut. In my book, uh, my twin sister and my younger sister are a very big part of my childhood. But then when we get to high school and they have their own struggles, um, I they kind of fall out of the story and my best friends come in. And I did that purposefully because I'm not there to tell their stories. I'm there to tell our stories and my story. But it's very hard. And, you know, the book took 15 years to publish because it took me so long to work on my mom's character, which we have that in common. My dad had 
he passed away and I started writing it and he sits on my shoulder. A psychic told me when I write and I hear his voice in my ear Mm -hmm. and he always gave me permission to say the truth with him. Mm -hmm. But my mom, it took me many, many years. It's Mm -hmm. a better book for it, Mm -hmm. but I really, I, I can empathize what you're going through, but your work is so profound. And I think you write with so much love that it's going to be okay. You know, it's going to be okay, but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Um, You came, you co-edited this very beautifully done, well-received best-selling anthology called uh, the Chicana mother work is what's the name of it? Yeah. The Chicana mother work anthology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if you have a copy of it, you can hold it up um, if they can see it. Yeah. And I put the link to it. Everyone that's watching either live Please pick up this anthology. It's amazing. Um, it's the Chicano Motherwork Anthology. So what motivated you to collect and kind of edit this anthology? I know it, it, there's a lot of social justice in there, immigration rights, issues of equity and inclusion. Um, how does that play a role in this anthology and, and how did it come about? Um, so this really came out of, at the time, so I think we all, so there's five editor, co, um, I'm one of the five co-editors and coming into my PhD program as a single mom. So I moved from NorCal to LA. I didn't know anyone. And I just, I didn't really fully understand the extent of um, even what grad school really was, or even mm-hmm. what a place like USC was, because I came from community college and uh, the UC system. So, you know, public institutions and then, uh, going to a very wealthy, private, uh, prestigious kind of university. It just, I really didn't know how to handle it on top of being a single mother of color oh, yeah. where no one else like in my cohort had uh, children or dependents. And I felt very isolated. And so I did have a friend at UCLA who I think was she in her second or third year where she became a parent and we connected and uh, she reached back out to me when she was going to have her child. And um, and then from there, we were thinking about applying to a conference. So the conference in our field for uh, ethnic studies is the, the annual American Studies um, Association conference. And we just kind of came up with the idea, well, why don't we just do something? And we titled it Mothers of Color in Academia. So oh, this- Wow. Yeah, and it was it was really um, just something that we needed, and we figured that other people needed that space too. And I think that was also at the time where you know things are very different with social media now. And I'm glad that there is more, much more representation. Um, but at the time, at that time, there really it, it, social media was still kind of in a different phase, an earlier phase. So that we I, even online, I didn't really see much representation. So we decided to have this panel and the other we invited other editors uh, who became later we became the editors of the anthology so it was Michelle Tez, uh, Judy Perez Torres and uh, Christine Vega and then my friend from UCLA her name was um, Yvette Martinez Wu and after we presented at ASA which is the first time that the five of us met we decided to continue working together as a collective the Chicana Mother Work Collective so from oh, there that's awesome yeah, so we were really, we really um, bonded and connected, and, and in particular Michelle Deyes because, it, oh, it was around the time that we were organizing the 
the panel, the Mothers of Color and Academia panel for ASA, the American Studies Association, uh, that Michelle Bayes had just come out with an article uh, titled, in the title, that said something like single Chicana mothering in the academy. And I had never seen that represented anywhere. So, you know, especially at this Mm -hmm. time, like several years ago, where um, there just was not much, if anything, right? And so uh, I really connected. There's still not a lot, to be honest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we, after we had worked together a couple of years, then we started, I think the process, the call for papers in 2017, and then it was published in 2019. And then other wonderful things happened, like Ana Castillo wrote the foreword, and we also oh. interviewed her on the podcast that we had. So we had a podcast for a little while, the Chicana Motherwork podcast. Um, we had a blog. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, like we had a book tour. So this was uh, before COVID. So we actually were able to go and visit campuses, and um, it was wonderful. So I'm very proud of the anthology, and uh, it's still being taught in university classrooms and other spaces. So what an accomplishment. Not only do you get to put this social issue out in the forefront of the discourse, but you get to embrace other writers that are writing about this and that have experienced these issues. You know, I went to USC too, and it was culture shock. You know, I went to junior college for many years. Uh, It took me five or six years to transfer. Then I went to UCR. And when I got to USC, I just remember one girl like lived in Laguna Niguel or something. Her and her dad had bought a building. She had like a scholarship, but didn't need money. And it was just such a shock to me or the dinners and uh, the, I used to babysit for one of my professors and she used to pay me like a lot, like for one night, she'd give me 50 bucks. And I was like blown away by someone could just hand me $50 to babysit for one night. And yeah, it was two kids and they were a little rambunctious and wild and she didn't let them eat much of anything except like organic food. But I was always just, and I would make them popcorn. So they loved me. And she never knew that I used to make them buttered popcorn (laughs) and I used to let them watch TV and they were (laughs) anti-electronic rich white folk, you know, Oh, don't let the kids watch TV. I'm like, dude, the TV was my babysitter, but, um, it's interesting that the culture shock coming from a blue collar, I was first generation college student too. It's just so different when you have no support. I remember someone said something like, how come you didn't get any private loans? I'm like, because my credit score is like 300 and my mom and dad's credit score is lower than that. <laughs> like, why do you think? Yeah. Cause I like, didn't qualify. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it just, yeah, just so many kind of like these hidden, it's just like, what's been, I've heard to it referred to as like the hidden curriculum, like things that I just yeah. didn't know and really not really even understanding like the extent of other people's like privileges or access to like other kinds of resources. So that it was, it was definitely um, a challenge, but yeah. I was able to make it and yeah. I graduated finally after a long time. I was in the program for a very long time. Yeah. yeah, congratulations. What an accomplishment. And your son, I mean, I'm sure he's so proud of you. And so where does the title come from? The Chicana Mother Work? Is it, you, did you create that title or, or does that come from something? Yeah, so the, as, so in the introduction of the anthology, we cite uh, where a lot of our thinking and theorizing and, you know, praxis, how we ground ourselves. Uh, and the term mother work is from Patricia Hill Collins, who uh, theorized this term 
it earlier in the 90s and she it, so emerged out of um, black feminism more specifically uh-huh. and the way that she theorized uh, mothering as a political act and so from there we were interested in exploring Chicana Latina mother work but then in the anthology we have uh, BIPOC people women of color from um, all um, diff- from different ethnicities and um and racial identities, so not just Chicana and Latina. Um, oh, that's great. So, include all BIPOC writers, that's terrific. And I know yeah. you focus on that a lot in your uh, activism. Yeah, yeah, so for, for so for example, my writing workshops, I teach almost exclusively um, to BIPOC uh, participants only. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, because they need to hear your voice. Um, and I had told you this, um, that I was, uh, rereading Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class after knowing I was going to talk to you. And she wrote this in 1981. The collective chores collectively known as housework, cooking, washing dishes, doing laundry, making beds, sweeping, shopping, etc. apparently consumes some three to 4,000 hours of the average housewife's year. As startling as this statistic may be, it does not even account for the constant and unquantifiable attention mothers must give to their children. So I love that idea of mothering as a political act. My niece, who's um, just turning 18, just had a baby. And I love Isaiah so much. He's our little, he's our little, we call him Mr. Big because he weighs a lot. And um, it's just, you know, I, I went through infertility. So um why I fully believe I'm like hardcore feminist, pro-choice feminist. The fact that my niece had the choice and chose to have the baby, it ended, it ends up being such a blessing to our family. I mean, I get teary eyed just thinking of it because it's just, when we go to breakfast now for Easter, we have this little baby there and it's just, it's just beautiful. And it is a political act to love and to nurture and to support children of color. Right. I mean, Yeah, absolutely. And that also reminds me of uh, another anthology. I think it was published in 2016, Revolution, Revolutionary Mothering. So that mm. anthology very much influenced our anthology. And I, so the editors of that anthology, uh, and one of them is Alexis Pauline Gums, who's one of my um, uh, writing um I, I view her, her work has been very influential to me. And she wrote something exactly like what you said of how raising children of color um, is a, a political act. And she writes and she writes there something like, you know, because we're raising children who are not supposed to exist um, wow. because there's so many systems, um, you know, against people of color and children yeah. of color in particular, and kind of viewing it in the lens of um, reproductive justice as well. Ooh, I, so it's revolutionary mothering. I have to get this book. Um, and I'll put a link to that later on my Life of Gem Facebook page. So interesting, right? Especially with the Roe v. Wade stuff pending. Oh, yeah. well, it's been decided, but there's so much more going on. You know, for mm-hmm. me, I think about this a lot. What is really what is the purpose of the right wing trying to over they're trying to incarcerate women of color Mm -hmm. and when you look at it with that lens that this is about incarceration this is about creating a criminal penalty for exercising your reproductive rights when i think of it like that it just it's so disturbing because we're going back to the slavery back to why i'm an abolitionist why the criminal system is so broken and it's because you make something illegal and what people don't realize 
what do, what's the remedy? It's incarceration. Mm-hmm. And you're going to take away their children. Right. If yeah. They get pregnant in custody mm-hmm. again. And so I, oh, it's just so pernicious and disturbing. I really want to write something about it, but I can't, haven't been able to wrap my mind around it because I am conflicted in so many ways because of my fertility story. And I love, but I also just believe that the, the people that Roe v. Wade is going to impact are poor women of color and doctors who want to serve those women. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, and well, I hope you are. Well, at some point, if you are able to write something, it's just it's so necessary and, and needed, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have these narratives. Yeah. Um, I mean, in California, we're lucky. Right. But in places like I just heard an NPR article, uh, This American Life, they did a whole episode on women who were trying to exercise their reproductive uh, freedoms right after the passage. And in one state, there was a they ha- they put a injunction so it couldn't be enforced so women could still get abortions but then in other jurisdictions women had to you know find airfare and get tra- it's just oh my gosh so it's really interesting to think about you know your work is so revolves around family how does being a mother how does that impact your writing and your teaching yeah so i i think for me it i actually stopped writing or pursuing creative writing, I think around the time I was finishing my undergrad. So that mm-hmm. finally that final year I became uh, a mother or I had my son. So mm-hmm. I was finishing up that last year. And then I felt really pressured because you know, just being a mom, I oh. I was still I, I was even worried about um would I even graduate? with my BA or not. And I think um, I was kind of, I think that kind of scarcity and just kind of fear-based kind of um, reaction that I had, um, because of course, that's just the reality for just low income or working class people of just like, well, I need to figure out something that's just more stable than, you know, being an artist. (laughs) And even though that was always my dream of being a writer and, Mm -hmm because of that, that's why I pursued, so I took a year off uh, after I graduated. And then that following fall, I started the PhD program because I kind of told myself, well, if I can't be, you know, who could be a writer? You know, I didn't know any full-time working writers. Um, and instead I, I said, well, I'll do the next best, next best thing, which was study writers and literature. Mm and in a PhD program, right? And becoming an academic. Um, So uh, at that time, I also, when I started the PhD program, I stopped writing creatively. And I think, Mm. again, it was just that continuation of um, having, you know, coming from that scarcity mindset or uh, fears around, you know, Mm. how to earn income, how to earn money, what can I do in my career and have more stability? And also during the program, and this is what I've heard just over and over again from so many people in higher education and then PhD programs in particular that we learn to write in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And really that wasn't my voice. That academic voice wasn't my yeah. voice. And even when I've looked back at, um, like when I was finishing my dissertation, I went and looked at my um, qualifying exams. And it's just like, I don't even know that's not me. You wow. know, that, that, and I think, so it took me until 
actually COVID where I finally uh, gave myself permission to be an artist and a writer. And I joined Women Who Submit, uh, which is a great organization and kind of slowly but surely started applying to um, online workshops. And because I kind of started giving more um, time and energy to my creative writing around the time of uh, COVID and lockdown, I, and because I'm a mother, I was able to do online workshops. And wow. that makes a huge difference for me because otherwise it's just much more difficult to go to the, you know, in-person um, workshops or residencies. So, and I know we talked about that a little bit right before we started recording. So a lot of these uh, creative writing spaces just were not accessible to me, but because of the conditions of lockdown and COVID and how everything shifted so swiftly online, I think I was just in that position to just really take advantage. And yeah. since then, I... In a lot of ways, COVID was an impetus for many people to find yeah. their voice. I wrote, I did, right. I finished both of my books during COVID because I mm. finally was not commuting to work. I had more time on the weekends. I wasn't going anywhere. Right. I couldn't even see my family very much. I didn't have a lot of distractions. I was home a lot. And I, I love that idea of what you say that you were always worried about how to kind of pay the bills, right? Right. And I remember being an undergrad and I was going to be a journalism major and I decided to go for English than law school, trying to be pragmatic. And where did I end back up? Right where I began, creative nonfiction, essays. And it's the same thing. It's like, no matter what, whatever you're meant to do as an artist, you will find a way eventually. But I mean, I think you chose a good path that can lead you to both, but um, that idea of finding your voice and just, you know, that COVID helped you do that. And that idea that people take for granted that everyone can just go away for a week, right? And yeah. go go to Texas or go to Berkeley and go do these writing workshops that cost about 1000 to $1,500 a pop, sometimes two, 3000 with all the airfare and accommodations. I mean, it's just not something that, you know, someone that has a son to support and someone that's, you know, in a program already um, really can do. Like, do pe did you feel um, ever conflicted or were people like super cool about it? And then when you found COVID, there was a lot more virtual events. Um, in terms of like whether or not to attend the workshop? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think, well, for me, I think, um, I think because the conditions of lockdown were just like so unique and especially that for those first couple of months where it's just like nobody, no one knew what was going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was just so much global fear so I think at that time I think people were um very understanding and um and I think I think just in general um I think people or you know these programs or fellowships I think they are they want to be as accessible as yeah um so there's the you know, good folks, you know, who want to make things more accessible in these programs. And at the same time, it's still um, very hard for, um, you know, parents, uh, especially single parents uh, yeah. or people who are caregivers or people who have disabilities or immunocompromised, you know, so the list kind of goes on and on. Um, but I think that is also why I just partly why I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, especially with the themes that I write about in terms of yeah. um, poverty, because that is also, I mean, there is writing about people who do write about um, uh, poverty and 
uh, kind of similar themes that I write, but I do want to bring, you know, just my own perspective to that. And also knowing that uh, not only in terms of, in terms of the publishing industry, uh, the very low numbers of BIPOC authors in, in general, but also even smaller numbers who do come from these poor you know, low income yeah. backgrounds. It's so. an elitist. I mean, let's be honest. It's a very elitist white privileged club. Most writers belong to. And that's not to say that whatever, I'm glad they have money, but it's just, I do not think a lot of people in the academic field really focus on poverty. It's not cool to say, you know, you know, the stigma surrounding um, lack of, you know there's all this otherizing discourse like and not only that but academia itself is elitist you know um but I wanted to ask you this so I I loved the presentation and I don't want our writers to miss that this that are going to watch talk to us and I'm changing topics here about marketing because I I also have this another theory about writers that we don't want a lot of writers don't want to market we don't want to put ourselves out there but nowadays you have to and what I loved about your women who submit um, presentation is that you really focused on what do you do as a burgeoning writer? Because that's when you have no, I mean, I created my blog 10, 12 years ago and all this stuff. And it just was luck that it took a decade to hit, but I mean, what, so if you want to just kind of go through what your elements are for new writers, what they need to focus on. And I learned a lot. I'm going to start a newsletter soon. And that's because of you. Yeah. Yes. Oh yes. So that's, that's one of them. So um, I think, yeah, so the first, so I kind of just list, uh, listed, uh, so I wrote something like marketing, you know, some easy three-step, uh, an easy three-step process for the um, emerging writer uh, for marketing have, to create a marketing plan. And uh, of course, this is just very, you know, super beginner level. So of course, there are people who are, you know, full-time marketers or in the publishing industry, you know, publicists and things like that. So that's much more, that's more advanced, but for beginning writers who are just barely starting, you know, kind of like dipping your toe in and uh, this, hopefully uh, this article kind of helps just present marketing in a different way, because I do, I have seen that with um, other writers, and in particular, um, my fellow BIPOC writers, of mm-hmm. that tension between you know making art for art's sake and you know the craft and you know the beauty, and then at the same time um, you know earning income because creating art is also labor. It also takes time, and you know we live in a racial capitalist society <laughs> that disadvantages um, you know purposefully. Um, people of color. So we have the racial wealth gap, we have the gender wage gap in the workplace, and that also um, manifests in the publishing industry. So I do think it's very important for writers to get um, recognition for their work and to get paid for their work. And there are a lot of things, especially in our current digital age, so many tools that we can use that are free and low cost that can really help just start building um, an author's um, you know, profile or their reach. So the first step would be to just kind of figure out uh, each indi- for each individual writer uh, their own values and their own goals because it'll be mm. different for every writer. So some writers, um, let's say, for example, they want to sign with a big five publisher and get, you know, a huge advance and work with this specific literary agent or whatever. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But 
at the same time, maybe there's another writer who wants to publish with like an indie press and, you know, have more of an impact, you know, locally. And, um, you know, there's just so many possibilities or even, you know, self-publishing is also another option. And in terms of, you know, the hierarchy, it's just um, self, self-published writers are kind of, um, you know, not regarded in the same manner as a traditional, as authors who publish with like traditional publishing houses or, you know, indie venues. Um, but it just, it all depends on what each individual writer wants. And one thing that I also say about self-published authors is that they keep most of their royalties. So again, that mm-hmm. also impacts, um, you know, finances and earning income. And um, I actually said that recently to a writer of color and they kind of immediately said, oh, well, you know, it's not about the money. And it's just like, well, you know, it's just taking into account, you know, what are the pros and cons of publishing, you know, with a traditional publisher or even like commercial. So that's also kind of different indie publishing, self-publishing. So the more we just inform ourselves, the better we're able to kind of um, identify our goals. And just because, you know, another writer has these certain kind of goals or values doesn't mean, you know, we always have to have the same kinds of values. So it's always um, kind of just a learning process as we learn just more about ourselves and where we see ourselves going. So I always highly recommend that. And And I love that idea of identifying your goals and not letting someone else's values and goals influence your own, you know, because there's hybrid presses. If, you know, I have a friend that's uh, just, she's senior citizen. She had worked for years on her book and she had some savings and her goal was to get her book out in the universe. And she went hybrid with She Writes Press, which does a lot of marketing and they're pretty good for, you know, a hybrid press. And so it's really, like you said, Annie Lamott, who uh, is one of my favorite writers who wrote uh, Traveling Traveling Mercies, she said that if she was going to publish today, because her husband just published a self-help book, that she would go either indie or she would probably self-publish. And I think it's because of the monetization issue. And if right. you can create an audience, you can take all your own royalties. Because exactly. people don't talk about with indie press, you don't make any money. Mm-hmm. But you just really don't. Um, it's really hard. There's no advances. You got to do your own marketing. And then even if you uh, get, even if you sell a lot of books, you're only making a fraction of, you know, what the book costs. And I'm not in it for the money too, but you and I talked about this. I am working on monetization because I do think it's important to value ourselves as writers to, to insist that we should get paid for our labor because how, for how many years have they been taking free labor from people of color? Why do writers have to allow that? I mean, it's not to say that we don't want to do a lot of pro bono and nonprofit stuff. We do. We naturally want to do that, but it can't be all for free. Come on. Yeah. Come on. And I think part of that ties back to the marketing because, and that's another thing that I say in, you know, that, that uh, blog for women who submit where it's just, I'm also at the point where I'm not waiting for, you know, the quote unquote publishing industry, you know, whatever that means to externally validate my work or my goals Yeah, that there, that I can take um, ownership. Uh, I have autonomy over where I want to go, what I want to do and the things I want to accomplish and just putting my work out there. So yeah, for me, what that looks like is teaching writing workshops and being a teaching artist. So that's also another way to um, earn income. Um, I've done talks, I have a keynote coming up. So these can also um, pay more. And I think there are um, multiple ways to go about it. But part of it is 
embracing that visibility. So I actually, I love talking with writers about that because it's just like, how can we achieve these goals if, if we're, um, kind of holding back from putting ourselves out there. So there. Yeah. And it can be scary because a lot of writers are, um, it's amazing. I'm a very, um, I'm an outgoing person. I just get my energy from other people. And so sometimes I'm a little much for some writers because they're, um, more internal. They like the writing process of being alone and at home. I really like events and I really like curating events and getting people together and building community and being a connector. But I I do think even if you're not like an extrovert, you can still be a marketer because a lot of this stuff can be done at home on social media. You can make little videos. It doesn't have to be all fake and go lucky and all that. I know we all have our own personality. So I'm embracing right now doing me as opposed to pulling back, because I think maybe I'm a little much, but on the other hand, I'm just me. I'm 52. I'm not going to change. I'm a ham. And I think I love how you frame it in this essay, because you talk about identify your goals, but then you also talk about track your goals, right? So it's not just about identifying your goals. It's about somehow also keep track of what you're doing. It's like, that's why submittable exists. So you don't have to track your publications. And uh, so how do you feel about that, about the tracking? How important is that? Because like when you do a blog, you can track how many viewers you get. And Mm -hmm. I remember my blog, (laughs) it was like two, then it was three. And now I have like a couple thousand every month. And to me, that's all I want. That's a success Mm -hmm. for me. A micro audience that reads my work. That's all I need. But some people might say that's nothing. But I started out with five or six readers a month. So for me to have built it and that people are now reading just my musings in my adult voice, I think it's interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and kind of how you also mentioned um, that you started your blog, you know, years ago and what, like over 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. yeah. that's another thing with um, marketing where consistency over time does pay off and Ooh. and write that down it depend, you know again it depends on your goal so for you the blogging works but maybe for another writer maybe not so much the blogging but maybe the newsletter so that I also recommend the newsletter um in the blog so um partly to um to you know nurture your own audience you know yeah. outside of social media, which we don't own. So I also mentioned that in the blog, um, which means that's important. Right. Yeah. Because we've seen time and time again, you know, popular, you know, Instagram or Twitter accounts that, or TikTok or whatever that overnight, you know, they're, they're banned or blocked or something because Mm -hmm. they quote unquote violated community, you know, and it's just, of course it disproportionately, it disproportionately impacts, you know, BIPOC, creators on these platforms because at the end of the day we don't own um our platforms so that's why in the mm. blog exercise um you know having our own independent venues um such as a newsletter or a blog like in your case um you know something that is uh off the social so to also nurture kind of an audience yeah. outside of just uh, social media so um, and you post it to social media and I do that with Facebook I post the link and it populates automatically with Instagram it's a little harder you got to kind of I do screenshots and it's kind of not the best way but you know the whole you could do link tree I mean I think we writers don't really ever get together and talk about technology wise market how do we do these things and people are always just like I can't do it I'm gonna hire a publicist I'm like and a social media marketer 
I'm like, do you know how much a publicist costs? It's like thousands and thousands. You could put that money back into yourself and your own writing and your and your own community activism. So I don't think it's worth it to pay someone to do these things. Right. You know, if you get an intern or you have a little sister or brother, sure, make them do it. But I mean, it it I love being online and like always like cross posting. I I think it's fun. I love creating graphics. I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you find it fun? Because I don't know if people do it if they don't find it fun. But the newsletter thing, you can just do it as a task, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think it depends because uh, some people, maybe some writers maybe don't want to use social media at all. And mm-hmm. I think that's also yeah. fine. Um, but I think for me, um, I do have to put limits on my social media because I think um, there's sometimes where I post more than other times. So, for example, right now, I, ha- I haven't really been posting a lot on my social media. <laughs> but, um, but I think part of it is because um, it. I think maybe it depends on, you know, if you curate the types of accounts that you follow or the types yeah. of people that you follow, because at the same time, it's just um, these platforms are also designed to, you know, uh, take get our attention and, you know, that kind of can turn into um, maybe more scrolling than we want to do mm-hmm. or. Um, and I don't scroll. I got to be very clear about that. When I go to post, because um, I also run my offices at the Public Defender, our social media, I help the mm-hmm. uh, powers that be with it a little bit. And so if, if someone can't get online and post, I'll post something. But I really try to um, get in and get out. So if I post something about a podcast and I want to promote mm-hmm. a writer, I get in and get out. I don't really let myself scroll. And I think that's the only way you can do it because otherwise you can get, there was a point where my screen time was 10, 11 hours a day during COVID. Cause I was always on my phone either for work or for the writing. And I think that's really destructive. So if yeah. you can get in, get out, do your task. That's why the newsletter is a great idea. And that was your third thing that you recommended because you're able to do that off the social media you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And, but how do you build your listserv? I really want to know this. So the newsletter is being emailed to people. So how do you get people to give you their email? Do you get it through yeah. Facebook? Do you give an incentive? Like how would you suggest doing it or how do you do it? Yeah. So there's different ways to do it. And I think for me, um, I'm still figuring that out for myself, yeah. but when I think I just kind of just like, jumped right in, you know, it, it kind of feels like, you know, just, just plunge in the pool, you know, and when I first, uh, sent, before I sent my first newsletter, I just posted on my socials, like, I'm starting a newsletter. And then so uh, mostly just like friends at first signed up. And then um, I you also have the link on your uh, author website, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. And, and I, and then so after how do they sign up? You have a link that they click or something? Is that how you did it? Yeah. So I guess it, I think it's called um, a landing page. So okay. there's there's different newsletter um, venues. So I use ConvertKit, but there's also uh, MailChimp uh, that has a free version. You know, there's other, there's multiple versions. Um, okay. And, and it's pretty easy to, and you know, I don't, I'm not really tech savvy or anything, Me but either, it's yeah. easy to figure out. Yeah. And so I use. No, that's really yeah. helpful. Cause I've, I've always t- People have told me, start a newsletter. And I had one woman, a coach, say, you could pay me to start your newsletter. I'm like, why would I pay you to do that? I love doing stuff like this. But no one's ever told me the semantics of it. Oh, there's MailChimp. And that's a landing page. Like, it's really helpful to just talk to another writer who's doing this kind of stuff to figure out how you do it. Because it's like, people don't want to share that information. And I don't know why. Like, no one's going to steal it. Like, no one's going to create a newsletter just because you give him 
the information. It's right. only the people that would do it anyways. And you'll, you'll save them so much time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I love sharing um, resources and just sharing what I know. And there's, yeah. you know, I'm not an expert on marketing by any means, and I still have a lot to learn, but what I have learned, and that's, that's also what inspired the blog um, to hopefully, you know, help other writers and yeah. to not feel so um, to help them just feel kind of, you know, more empowered to uh, really create the creative life that they want. And it is possible to do that. So um, it is. And I think as writers, we always say, Oh, AWP, that's a white. I mean, if we don't apply to AWP and to these workshops that are primarily um, Caucasian, then there are not going to be no representation there. And I personally have had great success. Sometimes I'm, I'm only the one writer of color on the panel. And for me, that's okay. I don't feel, I feel like, Hey, I'm going to blow them away and they're going to be like, who is this Mexican girl? But I mean, it's like that, like the marketing is also networking. Talk about how your role as a Macondista, as a Vona fellow, which I did Vona four times. I love Vona at Tin House, which is a very prestigious, um, you know, summer workshop that's very hard to get into. That is probably not that well represented with writers of color. Maybe it's changing a little bit. Talk about how those communities have nurtured you because that's a form of marketing too that a lot of writers do, but they don't call it marketing or networking because networking is like, you know, an old school term, but I still use it because I do think it's about creating connections. Right. Yeah. And so I think um, another way to think about it would be a a term I've heard a lot is, um, you know, how to be a literary citizen and to support Ah. others. And also community building. So I, I see it as kind of a, a combination of everything. And um, and I think, yeah, when I came into the workshops, so I just, I started doing, um, I think I did three or four in 2020 or 2021. Wow. And so Tin House was one of them. I did Tin House twice. And luckily there were more um, people of color and including uh, my instructors who uh, were uh, Jackie Diaz. So I love her oh, book. Oh, wow. Ordinary Girls. And then also love that book. Therese. Yes, she's amazing. And then uh, Therese uh, Mylot, uh, the author of uh, Heartberries. And so her memoir. I haven't read that one. What's it? Heart- oh, is that the white book that has like berries on the front? Yeah, yeah. I have that in my on my to do on my to do. Oh, oh yeah. She, yeah, she's incredible. So she's an indigenous woman writer and she writes about mothering and mental health. So you know, similar themes. And Jackie Diaz also t- writes about poverty and you know, just incredible. Yeah. And it's just so in, in in on the one hand, you know, having access to these amazing instructors that otherwise I would not have access to because I don't have an MFA and um and I was able to get, um, I think, either partial funding or scholarships or, um, you know, crowdsourcing. So I've been able to figure out uh, the tuition and I've made it work. And I think for me, those spaces uh, have been um, pretty uh, influential in just how I'm moving forward in my in my writing and especially connecting um, with uh, certain writers, mostly writers of color. Yeah kind of on the same kind of um uh kind of the same kind of stage as like emerging writers or you know quote unquote emerging writers like at the same time I'm like well what do these all these terms mean or who is an emerging yeah, writer what does it mean yeah I mean yeah. I don't think this podcast would exist if I hadn't done a condo 
because I met so many people there that I felt comfortable reaching out to. And I remember Stephanie Elizondo Grace telling me, you know, get more involved in your literary community kind of thing. Yeah. But Tin House, I mean, they have, they do have a, a lot. If there's a writer of color that you love, if they're, they probably have taught Tin House. I remember Justin Torres did it the year I applied that oh, I didn't get in. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We the Animals is right. basically yeah. one of my favorite. It's a fiction, but yeah. it's based on his yeah. life. It's little vignettes, kind of like my book. It's been like a huge inspiration to me for so many years. And I kind of regret I never got to go and meet him. But I might have fangirled all over him and it would have been awkward. You know, <laughs> sometimes there's, it's good not to meet your idols. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. And then, you know, who knows? There could be opportunities in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I reread We the Animals. It's such a short book. But it just is just so beautifully done. And it just shows that it's not always about quantity it's sometimes just about the quality of the writing and these short stories can have more impact so tell people because we got about five more minutes about what's in the works for you um about your projects how they can find a workshop to take a class with you because i can tell you this if you could take a class with Celia, please do it would be amazing get her mother work um anthology chicana is it chicana x or chicana i'm sorry the chicana a Chicana Motherwork Anthology. It's available on Amazon. It's, a, I think it's, which press is it? It's a university press, isn't it? Yes, the University of Arizona. Okay, so you can also find it if you want to go on like Bookshop and get it from your favorite local bookstore. If you don't want to use Amazon, I get it. But the Chicana Motherwork Anthology, it's beautifully, I have my copy coming tomorrow. I got lost in transit a little bit. And um, I'm so excited to read it. The social justice aspect you know, the co-editing, the stories that you're telling. And I know this came out a few years back, but I think it's even more relevant now with Roe v. Wade and everything that's going on and reproductive justice. So tell people about your upcoming projects, how to find you, where they can take a class with you and uh, what's next on the horizon. Oh, yeah. And uh, actually, uh, I think I might just have time for maybe like a minute or so because um, my charger is not charging and, I'm okay. and I have no idea why it's not Yeah, charging. we're almost done. Yeah. Um, so if it cuts out suddenly, that's why. Um, okay. So I think, yeah, I have, I'm teaching this Saturday for Poets House Online, a three-hour generative uh, workshop. Uh, I'm also teaching uh, in June for the Crow Collective. And that theme is, the title of that workshop is Love as Resistance. Um, oh, wow. And focusing on bell hooks and um, her book, All About Love, How Love is in Action. And, you know, what does that mean for BIPOC and marginalized people? Uh, and writers. Um, I'm working on my memoir. I'm working on my poetry. Um, I'm also uh, focusing on um, teaching more workshops. I have a keynote coming up at Pasadena City College. Um, oh, what date is that? Um, the, oh, the, oh, I'm forgetting the exact date. Uh, is it the 28th, I think? Um, okay, send me it and I'll post it on my page. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So those are some things that I have coming up. Oh, I'm also applying to um, business grants uh, because I also want to learn more about how to um, really just take my workshops uh, and my speaking uh, to the next level. So I think that's also something that's so important for writers because we're in the business of selling our books, right? So, and I want more of that um, guidance and, and framework. So I'm applying to more of these opportunities. I'm really excited about that and to apply it to the creative, creative writing and the publishing industry with the goal, of course, of, of helping other BIPOC writers to also have more financial abundance and, you know, to get compensated for the, the important work we're doing, you know, as cultural workers. 
I really appreciate that. I want to thank you for coming on, Cecilia Caballero, Dr. Cecilia Caballero. I also want to say the next episode is Dave Pelzer, who wrote Child Cobbit. He has a new memoir called Return to the River. And that's he'll be on our podcast next week at 7 p.m. Pacific. So, Cecilia, I hope we get to do a reading soon. Please send me the information so I can let all the viewers who watch this later know where to find you. If you have any events you want to send me links to, I'll put those on my Life of Jump page. Thank you so much. I so admire you and your work and your commitment to nurturing other writers and also your commitment to nurturing yourself and putting your voice out there. It's really impressive. Thank you, Juanita, for this opportunity and everything that you do. So thank you so much. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Have a great night. Bye. Oh, can we take um, a photo real quick? Oh, yeah. Let's do that. I didn't end it yet. Let's do this. Okay, yeah. Good idea. I need to start doing that. Okay, so I guess I'll hold it kind of right here. Okay, say cheese. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my, gosh, my my laptop is holding on for it's still at 1%. So <laughs> That happened to me before in the middle of a podcast where my computer went out and I always have my phone as a backup fully charged so I can throw it on and log in. But hey, you made it. It's 8:01 p.m. Thank you <laughs> laptop. Thank you Cecilia again. Uh, I'd love to promote you however I can. Send me the info and we'll let the life of gem viewers know about you. Look up her work. Take a class with her, Dr. Cecilia Caballero. If you heard and rewatch, if you came in late and watch her read her story, um, the exoskeleton, so beautifully done. Thank you again. Have a great night. Have a good night. Okay.